This is a McKillop Farm Management Group podcast. We acknowledge and respect the traditional owners of the ancestral lands, Potterwich to the north, Jawajali to the east, Bowendick to the south and Meetung to the west of the Limestone Coast region. We acknowledge Elders past and present and we respect the deep feelings of attachment and relationship of Aboriginal peoples to country. Welcome to The Prosperous Farmer, a podcast telling the stories of farmers in the Limestone Coast and Western Victoria. I'm your host, Meg Bell, and today I'm here with Bull Lagoon farmer Bruce McLean and Persa Senior Soils Consultant Dr Melissa Fraser. Bruce has extensive experience cropping at Bull Lagoon. He's trialled different crops, invested extensively in infrastructure and equipment, and has achieved good yields due to his focus on adopting the latest technology. Mel has worked extensively over the last eight years exploring ways to overcome constraints in the region's soils. She's passionate about restoring soil function to ensure a healthy future for farmers, consumers and the environment. Thanks so much for joining us today, Bruce and Mel. Bruce, tell us a bit about how you first got into farming. Uh, well, Maggie, if you want to go back to when I was a boy many years ago, uh, yeah, grew up on a family farm east of Narracourt and that was mainly a grazing property. Yeah, near Hornham, about 14 kilometres east of Narracourt. And then in school holidays, started working for an uncle of mine in the Bulligan Plains. And then that sort of led to working for him after school years. And then we ended up purchasing land of our own out that way and working all together and started from there. So tell us a bit about your farming business as it is now. Yeah, probably it's all basically, say, 100% cropping. My have my own farm and then I do a lot of share farming and some contract work for other neighbours and supplying just all the um, seeding and spraying and spreading and all the anything related to cropping because I've got the know-how and the gear for that and people um, do all that sort of things to spread their risk. You're growing a few different types of crops out there on the plains. Tell us a bit about the types of crops you're growing. Yeah, well, the main crop would be uh, wheat. A lot of some of these red feed wheats for the feed market. Fairly big uh, dairy industry or supply with that. And oh, faber beans are my main legume crop, along with some Persian clovers for seed production, um, certified and uncertified. And a little bit of canola, but not as much as we used to. And oh, a little bit of seed phalaris and lucerne, but on a smaller scale. So can you share with us why you focus on cropping in your business and not livestock? Yeah, well, sort of the country we're farming, it sort of suits itself to cropping because it's probably too wet and slow in the winter time for grazing. Well, I think we're getting pretty good results out of the cropping, so we sort of lean that way and I haven't got much of the animals on four legs. <laughs> it's not my forte. <laughs> Leave that to somebody else. That's it. <laughs> Mel, as a soils consultant, you've been working with broadacre croppers in the limestone coast to reduce waterlogging and improve soil condition. Can you explain to us the difference between waterlogging and inundation and how do these constraints need to be treated differently? Right through the western districts of Victoria and the, the lower limestone coast particularly, we are in the high rainfall zone. And what that means is when all that rain comes in the winter time, obviously we want that water to be able to move down through our soils and across our soils and, and hopefully out of the root zone um, quickly. When I think of waterlogged soils, I'm really referring to soils, I guess, on the eastern side of the Narracourt range. So the soils that are um, quite silty um, and sandy on the surface and then have 
really um, tight clay structures underneath. And so for waterlogging, I'm really talking about the water that comes from the top that has slow movement down, you know, in terms of the way it percolates down through the profile. It can get held up by different layers. So that might be driven by compaction or by a chemical condition called sodicity, which really leads to poor soil structure. And because of that, we have this poor downward movement of water. When I think about inundation, I'm really talking about the soils out on the plains, sort of the plains that are all sort of um, to the west of the Narracourt Range. And we're really, we're dealing with a lot of water that flows right across those plains from the southeast of the catchment right historically to the northwest of the catchment would have historically fed out into the southern lagoon of the Coorong. And there we've got a combination of both surface waters initially early in the season and then also the rising groundwater from underneath. Really, it's water that we can't quite control. And sometimes it does come from underneath before it even really comes from the top. And so in that particular case, it it is related to the water table and the way that we can influence that then, I guess, is with our own surface drains, but also with the regional drainage network, you know, raised beds or employing different practices that really lead to us growing lots of biomass so that we can convert that water into transpiration in crops rather than it being evaporated or, or having to filter down through that drainage network. So you've talked about the drainage and the raised bed cropping as being a few ways that you can sort of work around waterlogging and inundation. Are there any other different technologies that have been tested or that you've been trialling to, to deal with too much water? As part of some recent work, we've been looking at some soils over near Francis through that sort of eastern east of the Narracourt Ranges through that patch where we know that crop yields are variable across you know landscapes but also within paddocks and it's really important that we try to understand what's driving that variability and we've actually used some mapping um, technologies so em38 which tells us about the characteristics of the soil and how much electricity basically it, it can conduct based on how much water or salt or clay it holds and it gives us a really nice picture from the surface to tell us how the soil type is changing and what we do when we when we get those kinds of maps is we can go back and take strategic soil samples either within a patch or a zone or a grid-based and start to look at changes in soil chemistry and fertility within those areas so that we can start to work out what's, what's driving the variability in crop yields. And then we can come up with some really strategic plans. It might be um, gypsum, say, if we've got a sodic patch or it might be some additional phosphorus fertiliser if we've actually drawn down those reserves in a, a really better soil type, which is we've been you know, re- removing more from. That's sort of where we're getting to in those kind of soils in terms of that strategic amelioration. What can we do to let those soils breathe again? And how do we get some air back into them? What are the practices from a maybe a mechanical perspective with, say, deep ripping or some cultivation? What are the chemical amendments we can use in maybe some compost or gypsum or strategic fertiliser? And how do we really get some organic matter into those soils to open them up? So I'd say that's probably the first one with that sort of real waterlogging that we see in those kind of soils. When it comes to um, inundation, one of the challenges that we've got out on the plains, obviously, like I said, we want to convert as much of that water as we can into crop biomass. We don't want to transpire it. We want to actually utilise it in a useful way rather than putting it out the drainage network or into the air as um, evaporation. So we really want to grow as much biomass as we can early in the season before it sort of goes underwater and gets inundated. And then we want to be able to access that water that is within the water table for as long as we can to grow as much biomass through as as our soils warm up. Now, the challenge that we have out on the plains, as everyone would know, is that we have a shallow um, cowcrete layer or limestone. 
which actually limits the exploration of roots down through the profile. So one of the um, technologies we've been looking at in the last few years is actually how we go about breaking that hard rock cap to increase root exploration down through the profile. That sounds a bit tricky because <laughs> it's under a layer of soil. So what, what's the best way to do it? Have you found it yet? The, well, there's a couple of different machines, I guess, that are on the market for, for dealing with you know subsurface rock, if you like, within the root zone. I guess in recent years you've been working with the Reefinator, Bruce, on your own farm. So perhaps I'll let you talk about that and then I'll talk about some of the things that we've seen when we've opened up some pits. Yeah, I guess I started looking around a few years ago to see, well, I was thinking of doing some raised beds but there wasn't much point trying to raise something you didn't have because we didn't have a lot of soil above some rocks. So we had to deal with the rock first before we could actually try and raise something. I thought about the stone crushes an original process and then sort of came across the reefinator as something to try and yeah we hired a, a reefinator for a couple of years and then ended up purchasing our own because we could see the value in it but basically the reefinator just was doing a much more efficient job to what we were looking for and um yeah, it wasn't upsetting the soil profile as much as what the crusher was it all made paddocks trafficable during the winter time instead of disappearing into a bowl of soup you might say yeah, and it just basically came down to that efficiency and cost factor. It was the reefinator was sort of only coming down to sort of five hundred dollars a hectare in a couple of passes, where the crusher was nearly sort of fifteen hundred just in one pass. And the timeliness of doing it, the reefinator was sort of three hectares an hour, and the crusher was about well, barely a hectare an hour. It just seemed to be doing a better job and sort of bringing the rock to the surface, but leaving it where it is, and then just breaking it up from there played around with it for a little while and found the best thing to do was to go a bit shallower to start with sort of 150 mils in the first pass and then go slight angle off of that down to the 300 which is the maximum my machine can get to the newer models of probably go down another 100 mils but we're happy enough with where we're at at that depth at the moment your property was used as a demonstration and a case study um, which mel's been working with you on and you've done some soil mapping and you've also done the rock breaking with the reefinator how do you think it's benefited your business having having both of those demonstrations on your farm well i guess it's not a cheap exercise and it's been great just to really quantify what benefit we're getting out of the um, research and by doing what we're doing and i think the best part of the program that mel brought up was her um couple of graphs there of root zone mass underneath the rock which is sort of where we've been reefinating it was probably two-thirds more root mass than the area that we didn't reefinate so it was fairly positive light and it's all about creating that bigger bucket of soil moisture and nutrient profile that grows bigger crops and at the end of the day I think we quantified there was an extra tonne to the hectare and just a wheat crop that we had in the trial last year which yeah means a couple of year payback really so it's just really good to quantify what we were doing. Are there any f- other strategies or innovations that you've implemented on your farm to help improve crop yields? We've gone a fair way with that hyper-yielding project that's been done through the Millicent and Tassie and that, um, bringing the new varieties, but I think just the path we're going down now, the reefinator has certainly 
bringing that bottom 20, 30% of our poorer country up to a better level, and we're seeing the better results for it. Do you think being part of this work that Mel's doing with you has helped you to make more robust decisions on your farm? For sure. I think we just know we're going down the right track with what we've seen and measured, really. So, no, it's been good to just, yeah, really dig those soil pits afterwards and do those measurements and look at what's going on. We've had a few people out to visit your farm and dug a fair few soil pits. What, what's been the feedback from other people that are looking over the fence to see what you're doing? I'm very curious. and There's been um, a bit going on since since we've yeah, done those measurements and people have worked out it's going to be worth following up. And you look at the soil pits and Mel says, well, how do you grow nine tonne of wheat in that stuff? So, But we're getting that result and uh, it's great. Mel, what are some of the research priorities, in in your opinion, for reducing the impacts of waterlogging and improving soil conditions for cropping down here? Yeah, if we're talking about those soils, again, on the east side of the Narrowcourt Range, they typically can be very compacted in the surface layers and through traffic. Sometimes they're acidic in the surface as well, and then they become alkaline underneath. Uh, They can commonly be sodic, so they're dispersive, and again, they get really puggy when they're wet and set really hard when they're dry. They can lack organic carbon in the surface layers, and obviously we've got this poor drainage, you know, through them. So I think that there's a lot of work being done already by farmers, you know, in terms of adoption of liming and gypsum practices. But I think, you know, with the price of fertiliser the way it is and this sort of need to, to, to drive high outputs in our crops... I'm sort of really targeting those inputs so that we're putting the right product in the right place, you know, at the right time, both from an amendment perspective but also from a, an in-crop agronomic perspective as well. So if we know that across our paddocks, you know, we we, we might pull off a, you know, a nine-tub average like Bruce said, but we might actually be getting, you know, 12 tonnes in the better soil and we're actually only getting six in the poorer soils, but we're probably feeding the whole lot to nine. So I think, you know, becoming more strategic and precise about where we're putting like I said, our amendments, but also our in-crop inputs will probably be the next phase of of driving both productivity and profitability in those soils. When we get out onto the plains, I think, you know, in those particular, you know, heavy clay soils that typically are very shallow, you know, we can open up the bucket, like like Bruce said, and we can sort of get to these, you know, 9 tonne, 10 tonne, 12 tonne kind of yields. But uh, to do that, we obviously need a lot of nitrogen um, to produce those kinds of yields. And if we're going to convert nitrogen uh, in soils into plant available forms, our microbes are going to do that. And they actually need a sugar source at the same time. You know, we, none of us like eating our green smoothies. We all like to wash it down with a <laughs> teaspoon of sugar, right? So um, in that case, we like carbohydrates. Well, microbes in soils like carbons. So those two things go together, nitrogen and carbon, you know, dynamics and cycling in soils. We need to really be mindful of that, you know, on, on these soils as we dry them out and, they, you know, our conditions become a bit drier and a bit warmer, what's actually happening um, to carbon and nitrogen in our soils and what's driving the process. How do we make really smart nitrogen management decisions um, to achieve those yields in a way that is still maintaining the function and the fertility of the soil itself? And then we know that typically the pH is really high. It's tying up a lot of phosphorus. We don't have great availability with with the phosphorus we do put in. So we've seen some results, some really promising results with a few smaller trials that we've done in recent years looking at fluid 
you know, phosphorus um, forms and we've seen, you know, really good responses with those. So sort of half the P rate applied as a, as a fluid ammonium polyphosphate versus a, a granular product and, and, and increasing yields. So I think there's still a lot of work we need to do there, particularly with the introduction of these, you know, newer varieties, winter wheats that we're now growing, which have really been that, that boost in productivity, hasn't it? Yeah, like, Bruce, like that's what's what's sort of driven that and we need to understand in the Australian context what that means and in these soil types so I think it's a really exciting time you know in the cropping space and, and I think we'll see more cropping occur on the plains through the, the limestone coast you know we want to make sure we can do it and maintain the fertility of the soils and not drive them down over time Bruce Mel's talked a bit about what's coming up for her and what her priorities are what what's next for you on the farm where where are you heading Oh, we're always looking for further productivity gains, whichever way we go about it. I think uh, we've come a long way with what we've done here, and it's yeah started the ball rolling, that's for sure. And the next step is to yeah probably value-add what we're doing alongside of that. And like Mel said, probably focusing on those areas that still need an increase in input or something or value-add those areas that are worth value-adding to um, to bring that level up again. Um, it's just going to be an ongoing factor in the world of farming, I'd say. But uh, quite happy with where we've come from and, um, yeah, glad we've measured it along the way. Thank you both, Bruce and Mel, so much for sharing your story with us today. Today's episode is part of a broader project which is aimed at building the resilience and profitability of cropping and grazing farmers. The project is supported by Southern Farming Systems through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program and the Grains Research and Development Corporation. The project is delivered by a consortium comprised of Southern Farming Systems, MacKillop Farm Management Group, Agriculture KI, Federation University, Precision Agriculture, Glenelg Hopkins Catchment Management Authority, Australian Fertiliser Services Association, Victorian Lime Producers Association and the Victorian Department of Jobs, Precincts and Regions. Thanks for listening to The Prosperous Farmer, a MacKillop Farm Management Group production. You can rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at MacKillop Group or check out our website at mackillopgroup.com.au. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>